thank you for that. I you know you wonder, am I wanting to say that or not? Uh, this time I wasn't, Mike. But uh, Randy, let me just say to you as a team, uh, thank you for that beautiful moment. Um, I so appreciate you all. But I'm going to kill that moment. And let me just ask you this question. Have you ever wondered when you've come to church on Sunday morning, what's with all the blood in the lyrics? Maybe you find yourself secretly hoping that you know, you're coming and that you know a friend is coming as well, and you hope Randy hasn't picked out songs with all the bloody lyrics that are in there. Have you ever found yourself in that way? Uh, am I the only one, really? Um, please, Randy, hold off on there's a fountain filled with blood. I, it's just, what's with all the blood? Being washed in it, it seems so primitive and dark and, and gross. It may explain why some, I think, um, look at the church and think we're in the dark ages. But this really isn't fair. I mean, let's be honest, we gave up animal sacrifices in the 80s. So I couldn't resist. And to be honest, I wasn't sure I'd get a laugh. You always, you always have to be cautious about jokes with blood and particular animal sacrifices, uh, but I went for it. Here's the deal. We don't like blood, right? We wear, we wear rubber gloves, we sanitize, we rate our movies based on how much blood is seen in the movie. We even return our steaks if they're a bit too red. But whether we like it or not, the Bible and the Christian story is bloody. And when we come to Hebrews 9 this morning, we'll especially see this to be true. So before we open up the scriptures together today, let's just try to answer a simple question that I've done a poor job of raising, but why all the blood? So hang with me here for just a moment. Let's take a step back. I want us uh, to think for a moment, engage your brains here for a moment. A few weeks ago, uh, we all received an Amber Alert about a 10-year-old Springfield girl named Haley Owens uh, who had been abducted. I don't know if you got this. It's kind of this new system. A big warning sounded on our TV. Uh, Alerts actually popped up on our phone. And as we now know in this story, several neighbors witnessed this abduction. They they actually chased the truck. They wrote the license plate. And unfortunately, if you know the news, the story did not end well. Later that evening, uh, the police arrested Craig Michael Wood at his home. And when he arrived and stepped out of his truck, he actually had a roll of duct tape in his hand. They found Haley's body in the basement, in his basement. She was wrapped in a trash bag, dead from a gunshot wound. And when you heard that story, what was going on inside of you? Sympathy for the Owens family? For sure, right? I can't imagine the pain that they must be experiencing. But along with these feelings of sympathy, were you feeling anything else? Well, if you're like me, it made me thankful they found him. And I wanted him to pay for what he did. Now, I know that I shouldn't wish certain things on people, but in that moment, I did. You see, I wanted his payment to be slow and painful. 
Now, this is not a moment to raise your hands or respond verbally, but can anybody feel that with me? Why is that? What's going on inside of each of us in moments like these? What is it that makes us watch the Oscar-winning movie 12 Years a Slave and long for punishment to come to the slave owners that are inflicting pain and torture? Now, I'm a Christian and a pastor. I not only know that God forgives and restores, I teach it. And yet, when I see the face of Craig Michael Wood, I don't really want him to be forgiven. At least, not yet. I want him to pay. Now, why is this? What's going on inside of us? What's going on inside of me as we we process these horrible moments? And I know some of you this morning may be thinking that I'm chasing a disconnected rabbit trail, but hang with me. Because I think our cry for payment is a cry for justice. That inside each of us is a longing for wrongs to be made right, for justice to be done. And although we may not be able to articulate it, we know this basic truth, a truth that I believe will jump off the pages of Hebrews chapter 9 this morning, is that justice always means that someone has to pay. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning and want to follow along as we look at the text this morning, turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. You'll find it somewhere near the end of the Bible. Now, as you're turning there, and as we've discussed, Hebrews is thought to have been a sermon given to a congregation of new Christians from a Jewish heritage, a sermon that was so good that it went viral in a 2,000-year-old sort of way, and it was copied and distributed among the churches as Christianity was beginning. And as we come to chapter 9 this morning... Here's a warning to those of you that are linear thinkers and processors. The preacher this morning approaches an important topic with much more of a circular logic. And therefore, we're going to be sort of jumping around in chapter 9 to look at what is being said. As we do this, I think there's, there will be three prominent words that we don't want to miss. Judgment, blood, and sacrifice. Let's start with this first word of judgment. Look with me at verse 27. And you might be thinking, well, we jumped way to the end. This is, as the section, this section of the sermon is coming to a close, the preacher wants to make sure that they understand why these words are important. So I thought this would be a great place for us to start. Do you see it there? It says, it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. Just in case you didn't hear it, here's a fact that we often like to ignore. We will all die. It's been said that there's two things are certain, right? Death and taxes. Actually, I think the preacher would want us to know that there's three things that are certain. Death, taxes, and judgment. We will all die. 
and be judged on how we did living up to God's expectations for us. How we did obeying the laws that he commanded us to live by. All of us. Uh Uh-oh. You see, we all love the concept of judgment when it comes to Craig Michael Wood. There'll likely be a crowd gathered at the courthouse on that day when his sentence is announced. But the idea that I would face judgment for what I did or have done or didn't do, I think we sort of like to treat that like we do our inevitable death and just not talk about it and pretend it's way in the future, right? But it nags at us, doesn't it? See, death and impending judgment sort of knocks at our door through the death of, death of friends, through the tragedies we see in the news. And we do our best to try to ignore it, to keep ignoring it, and try to convince ourselves that it won't happen to us for a long time, but it's just sitting there nagging at us. And for those of you that are younger, the older you get, the more it nags. Now, I don't know what troubles you most about death, but I think if we're honest with one another, the thought of standing before a holy and righteous God who demanded a lot from us and having him judge us can be a bit unsettling. Now, for some of you here this morning, I recognize I just made a very big leap for you. Because, see, you have a hard time processing this idea that there is a judgment. You're here this morning and you just are clinging to the hope, the belief that God is love. And you're hoping that in the end, he'll just be kind and forgiving to everyone, including you when you die. This is a very popular idea today. I find myself at times wondering if God would really exclude a human being that he created. I wrestle with this. And to be honest, I really want to believe it's true. That the joy of eternal life is, in the end, will be for everyone. That would be much easier to preach. But then I think about Craig Michael Wood. Or Adolf Hitler. Or those who are holding currently holding girls in bondage as sex slaves. What about them? And I immediately realize my double standard. You see, I want to be free of judgment. But I don't want them to be. And if we have any inkling that we want them to face judgment then we must face the fact that we will too. And unfortunately for all of us here this morning, God doesn't grade on the curve. So let me ask you this morning, have your efforts of self-improvement prepared you for the judgment that you will face before God on that appointed day of death? Will you be able to make it on your own? This self-salvation project that you've been undertaking, how's it going? 
Now, if your answer to these questions is yes, uh, let me just go ahead and say that this rest of this message from the preacher to the Hebrews will be absolutely meaningless to you. And as a matter of fact, Christianity in general will be nonsensical and merely meaningless drivel to you. I love the way C.S. Lewis in his uh, book, Mere Christianity, which is a compilation of radio addresses that he gave, he said it this way. He said, Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. If there, it therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel they need any forgiveness. It is after you have realized there is a real moral law, a, a, a standard to be judged by, and a power behind the law, a God who judges, and, th- and that you have broken the law and put yourself wrong with that power, it is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. But this morning, if you see yourself as a person who regularly fails and in need of forgiveness, you are left with another important question to consider. Can God find a way to be just without also destroying me? Yes, he can. But here's a warning. This is where it starts to get bloody. Look back with me at Hebrews 9. In verses 11 through 28 of this chapter, the word blood appears 11 times. The preacher is wanting to make sure that we know that, the blood, that this blood is our only hope for making it on judgment day. Look there in verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Calves and goats and sprinkling, oh my. I knew that blood joke wouldn't go over very well. The preacher wants to make sure here that we don't miss this truth, that our only hope is in the shedding of blood. Do you see it there? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness to sin. And the preacher reminds this, reminds them of this sacrificial system that they've grown up with, a system of animal sacrifice to cover the sins of the people. Now, how many of you have ever read the Old Testament, and in particular, the system of people purifying themselves through the blood of the animals, and thought to yourself, okay, this is just kind of weird. I mean, throughout the story of the Old Testament, it just sort of feels like something is broken or something is missing. I love the way Matt Chandler, in his book, The Explicit Gospel, talks about this. He says, what if the sacrificial system was given so that we would learn no matter how much we gave or how much we worked and how many pricey things we sacrificed that we still can't fix what is broken. And this is exactly where I think the Hebrew preacher takes us this morning. 
There is a cost for rebellion. There has to be payment. There will be blood. But it's not the blood that they were thinking. You see, a new way has arrived, which leads us to this third word, sacrifice. Look with me at verse 25. The preacher helps the congregation connect the dots. Now, remember, we have years of history to look back on. This is a group of brand new Christians, first generation followers of Jesus, who have grown up under the old system. They're hearing these words maybe for the very first time of connecting these dots of the old to the new. The preacher helps them in connecting these dots from the sacrificial system they're painfully aware of to the Jesus that they are now following. In verse 25, nor was it to offer himself, Jesus here, repeatedly. He's not doing this repeatedly. As the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly until the foundation of the world. In other words, Jesus doesn't have to keep doing this again and again, which was the way of the old system. But it continues, but as it is, he has appeared, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, all the religions of that day demanded blood. They knew there would be judgment. They knew the importance of blood. Some today still do. But the Christian faith tells a different story. You see, the price of our sinfulness has been paid. And this yearly annual purification, which was called the Day of Atonement, It's no longer needed. Atonement for our brokenness, for our failures, has been done by God himself once for all. And this sets Christianity apart from other religions of that day. You see, the God of Christianity does not require the blood of others to appease his judgment. Our God gave his own blood and in so doing proves to us that justice always means that someone has to pay. He created a new way to destroy evil without destroying us. Now let me pause here for a moment and just recognize that this idea, um, the concept that God would literally suffer and die in order to appease his own need for justice, his own anger and wrath, it causes some to stretch for another meaning. Some choose to call this a metaphor and say that it's like poetry or a story told in a novel. It wasn't meant to be literal. They often say that this just shows us another facet of God's love and that you don't really have to have bloodshed in order for God to forgive. But I think this only proves my point, that we don't like blood. Earlier this year, you may have read this in the news, a prominent denomination voted to eliminate the popular song In Christ Alone from its hymnal. A committee studied the words of the song and were troubled by these words, on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. In the statement they provided after the decision, the committee said that they believed that this teaching 
that the cross was primarily about the satisfaction of God's wrath would have a negative effect on shaping their, young, their students in the future. But let me be clear to you this morning. I don't believe this is a metaphor. God demands justice. And the fact that he stood in as our substitute is real. It happened. It's history. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. John Stott, in his classic work, The Cross of Christ, spoke of the exchange in this way. He wrote, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. Isn't that so good? The essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, and the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be, and God puts himself where we deserve to be. So what are we to do with these words? How should these words from the preacher shape the way we live? While we stealing from the verse 28, while we wait for judgment. Well, here I believe are three important truths that we must learn to embrace. First, we can be forgiven. He deals with our past. He has dealt with our past. This is not a metaphor. It's work that's been completed. It's done. To use Jesus' words, it is finished. You can't be so far from God that he can't or won't or, or hasn't forgiven you. He suffered the most extreme form of bloodshed to cover the worst possible thing that you have done or will do or could do. And because of that, we don't have to live in fear of judgment. I don't know if you all saw this. I, when I was reading through uh, Tim Keller's A Reason for God, in our, if you're in a community group and going through our material or just finished through the material, the little section that we had in there uh, from Tim, uh, there was a statement that I just absolutely love. He says that the fact that Jesus had to die for me humbled me out of my pride. And the fact that Jesus was glad to die for me assured me out of my fear. So I don't know where God has you this morning and why you find yourself here, but let me just encourage you, ask you, urge you to humble yourself and admit your need for forgiveness. Tell him you're sorry. And trust that he's paid the price for you once for all. Now, as we do this, doubts will inevitably come our way. Could God really forgive a sinner like me? We may find ourselves going back and forth and trembling at this thought of judgment. And when we encounter these doubts and have these fears, we really only have one hope that is going back to these truths here in Hebrews 9 and trusting that his work was enough to save us. We can be forgiven, and we can also find purpose. In verse 14, we see that through the blood of Christ, our conscience is purified. 
In other words, we're actually cleansed, but we're cleansed for a purpose. Do you see it there? In verse 14, his blood purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This phrase of dead works literally means that it's saying that the blood of Christ breaks us out of the pattern of shame-filled living that leads to death. It actually takes us away from the things that would end up where we would end up in despair by the cleaning of our conscience. When we recognize the price that God has paid for our forgiveness, we should be moved to a life of purpose and service to serve the living God. But the preacher doesn't stop there, and for that I'm thankful. You see, the blood of Christ also looks forward, and because of this, we can live with hope. You see, the blood of Christ not only covers the past and the present, it points to a future that is guaranteed by the same person who came to offer his life for us. You see it there in verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, because remember, that's done, it is finished, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on him. Christ came this first time to offer his blood on our behalf. He will come again to rescue all of us who are eagerly waiting on him. So as we close this morning, let me just ask you this question. Are you eagerly waiting on his return? Or does that seem like a more fearful moment for you? I'm guessing there might be some of you here this morning that who have never believed the Christian story. Maybe you've grown up in it. You've just kind of danced around the edges. You've been a bit skeptical. And for one reason or another, you landed here this morning. You stayed, and maybe you've been here frequently, and you're hearing it in a new way this morning, and God's just taken something I've said, and he's tugging at you. You see, you too long for justice, right? Right? And while you've tried to be good, the thought of being judged for your actions, for your thoughts, for the things you've neglected, that thought is just a little overwhelming. And while in the past you've been sort of able to shrug it off, this day of judgment, you've sort of been able to write it off as a fairy tale, uh, this morning, for some reason, God is working on you and speaking to you today. Fortunately for you and for each of us here this morning, avoiding condemnation, avoiding the condemnation of judgment is easy. And if you haven't heard it, let me say it again. The penalty has been paid. Christ stood as your substitute, as my substitute. Blood has been spilled, and we're all left with a choice. You see, we can take the path of Pontius Pilate, who when confronted with the claims of Jesus, that the, the claims that Jesus was the Son of God, he cleansed himself. He washed the blood off of his hands and says, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Or we can believe this really happened. And if it did, the implications are huge. And it can only lead us to humbly say, I have no hope without the blood of Jesus.
and we stop trying to be dignified or attempt to try to clean ourselves up, to look clean from the outside, and we cry out, as gross as it is, as dark as it may seem, for his blood to cover us, to wash us, to make us new. So what will it be for you this morning? Let's pray together. For our time of prayer, I want to give you some time to talk to God. Let me just ask a few questions. Is your faith grounded in Christ? And in this substitutionary moment in history, he paid the price for you as your penalty. And if it's not, can I just ask for you to wrestle with this question of why? What's holding me back? Why not today? And if you have, are you living in a way that shows that you understand the significance of what he did for you? Speak to him now.